Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. And you may be seated. As I said last week, we were going to start the book of James this morning, but as I thought about the election, you know, wondering about the outcome and, and if he wins, the implication of a Biden administration for believers and the church in this country, uh, I just couldn't go to the book of James. I, I was drawn uh, somewhere else in Scripture. You see, I believe that we as Christians had better prepare ourselves to live in an environment that is going to be very hostile toward biblical Christianity to the point that we should expect to begin to see persecution and eventually even severe forms of persecution. And I'm not saying that because I think Biden, Joe Biden, is uh, any more wicked than the other corrupt, immoral uh, uh, career politicians that we have, but because of the platform that he promotes, a platform that is diametrically opposed to the Word of God. Diametrically opposed. And when you have people who are uh, opposed to your agenda and, and you have the power, you put pressure on those people uh, to f- come into line or you seek to get rid of those people. And even if Biden doesn't win, persecution is coming. Perhaps not as quickly, uh, but it is coming. As Christians living in the United States of America, we we have enjoyed religious freedoms, at least to this point, that many in the world do not enjoy and some have never enjoyed. I mean, we have never felt the power of the state pressuring us to compromise or deny our faith. We have never had to face the reality of being denied employment or schooling or losing our jobs, our homes, our possessions, or even our lives unless we denied the faith. And I believe we all like to think that in those situations, we would unwaveringly stand for the faith and die before we would ever deny and dishonor our Lord. But I wonder, would we? Because when I look at the apathetic state of the church in this country, as I observe the lives of believers, which I have done now for nearly 30 years, I do not believe the majority would. You see, it's easy to talk a good game when you're enjoying religious freedom and are not facing persecution. But what will you do? What will you do? What will you do if to go to school, to be employed, to own and operate a business, you must sign a document that you acknowledge, agree with, and accept? That homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism are legitimate, normal forms of sexuality that you must accept, and to say otherwise is hate speech. What will you do when you're told that you must teach this in the classroom or be fired? What will you do when you're told you must abstain from attending any religious services as a requirement of your employment? What will you do when your giving to the church is no longer a tax deduction because the government has taken that away? What will you do when you have to make a choice between compromising or denying your faith and losing your job or your possessions or even your home? What will you do if you have to make a choice between compromising or denying your faith and going to prison? or suffering brutal physical punishments, or even a violent death, what will you do? 
What will you do then? I mean, many people in churches today find it hard to even regularly attend Lord's Day worship, to be an active part of the life of the body when we gather at other times, to, to regularly give according to the way that God has blessed them, to say nothing of sacrificial giving. They serve as little as possible, if at all, and they give every indication by the lives that they live that they love the world and the things of the world more than they love God and the things of God. And so are we to believe that people like this are going to be willing to live for Christ when it really, truly costs something? Are we to believe that they're going to be willing to lay down their very lives rather than compromise or deny the faith? What will you do? And loved ones, we had all better think about this very seriously. Because there is a very real possibility that this is going to become a reality in this country much more quickly than we realize. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, the Old Testament book of, of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. And as you're turning there, just a couple of thoughts about the book of Daniel. It's an important prophetic book. In fact, it is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. The two books really go hand in hand. We cannot really understand Revelation apart from Daniel, nor can we understand Daniel apart from Revelation. Secondly, a theme that continually appears throughout the, the entire book of Daniel is the glorious truth of the sovereignty of God, and which is a great comfort for believers in every age. And then thirdly, the book of Daniel also tells us how to remain true to God and live a holy life in a hostile environment. It shows us how to live when, when everything is against us. The Babylon of Daniel's day is a type of all kingdoms that do not acknowledge God or, or think that they can do away with Him, which is a fitting description of most of the world in our time, including so-called Christian America. I mean, Daniel and his friends were under tremendous pressure to conform. I mean, their religion was tolerated, even respected, as long as they did not allow it to, to intrude or to interfere with public life. And our situation today is similar. We can practice our religion as long as it's not in the schools, at work, or in public places. You know, we have to keep it to ourselves and in our churches. And those who desire to live godly lives will find much to gain from the example of Daniel and his, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are an example of being faithful to God in a very hostile environment. Daniel chapter 3 is the familiar account of three Hebrew young men, probably 14, 15 years old, who were tempted to compromise their faith in the truth of God's Word, but they absolutely refused. They were prepared to be out of step with everyone else, even if it meant a terrible death. Compromise was not a word in their vocabulary, and they would not do it no matter how great the cost. And here we see what it means to take a stand for the Lord in a world hostile toward biblical faith and truth. And so chapter 3 is a simple record of how three young men courageously defied the order of the most powerful man in the world at that time rather than displease God. To please God was far more important to them than even their own lives. Verses 1 to 7, we have the king's command. Notice verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold, an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, we don't know when uh, the king did this, and the chapter doesn't tell us. But Nebuchadnezzar may have gotten the idea for this image from uh, his dream in chapter 2. However, the image in, in his dream in chapter 2 only had a head of gold. But this image was made entirely of gold. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Its height probably included a massive base or platform on which it stood. We don't know for sure what the image was. It may have been of Nebuchadnezzar himself, which he arrogantly made as an expression of his own greatness and glory. 
It is possible that by this image of gold, Nebuchadnezzar was defying God, saying that the Babylonian kingdom would last forever and the day of his reign and authority would never end in contradiction to God's declared plan. But whatever the image was, uh, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, perhaps some six miles or so southeast of the city of Babylon. And when the image was ready, in keeping with Babylonian custom, there was to be a dedication service. Notice verses 2 and 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So Nebuchadnezzar commanded all the chief officers and public officials of the kingdom to be present at this dedication ceremony. So this was a governmental extravaganza, you could say. And all the important people within the government were to be there. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar was using the worship of this image as a test of their allegiance. And so all the important officials came from the farthest corners of the Babylonian Empire to the dedication, including Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But notably, Daniel was not there. Evidently, he was somewhere else in the Babylonian Empire on the king's business. Otherwise, he would have been required to be there as well. And after everyone was assembled, we read in verses 4 to 6, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So this dedication service was designed and orchestrated to lead a unified worship of one image by peoples, nations, and languages. And the fact that the herald addressed the officials as peoples, nations, and languages indicates that Nebuchadnezzar considered the officials as representatives of the peoples they ruled over. And so the officials' act of obedience signified submission not only of the officials themselves, but also of the peoples they ruled. And this dedication ceremony was to lead to a climactic act of worship. The orchestra would give the cue for all to fall down and worship in a prescribed way, and there were absolutely no exceptions to this command. None. If you refused to worship the image at the given moment, it would be regarded as treason and would bring immediate punishment, death, and a furnace of blazing fire. The kings of Babylon were actually noted for roasting alive people who disobeyed their commands. Jeremiah 29.22 speaks of Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar absolutely meant what he said. And so they're all assembled with the golden image standing high above them, and not far away the furnace was burning, smoke perhaps billowing from its top. And everyone knew that they must choose between the two. It was the image or the furnace. It was bow down or burn. That was the choice. Either worship the image or be thrown into the fiery furnace. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was not a man to be messed with. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The king's grand idolatry was accompanied by music, elaborate, well-produced music. And this reminds us of the great inherent power in music, both for good and for evil. 
And as soon as they, the officials heard the music, they fell down. And there was immediate and total obedience to Nebuchadnezzar's command on the part of all the officials. All that is, except three. Three Hebrews. Bowing down and worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's image was no problem uh, for all the other officials and the vast majority of the people in the entire Babylonian Empire because they were all pagans anyway. And so bowing down to an idol was nothing to them. It was common practice. And even for most of the Jews in exile, bowing down to the idol was not a problem because for generations they had disobeyed God and engaged in idolatry. And so they had no qualms about bowing before Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And submission to the king's command was, was not a problem for anyone except, except the godly remnant who have remained faithful and true to God, refusing to worship false gods. You know, the first commandment was, was of great importance to them. They considered, I mean, they actually believed that, that nothing was more important than loving their God, the, the only true God, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. These three young men had, had refused to even consider eating food that was sacrificed to idols, so they certainly were not going to bow down to one. I mean, everyone else might submit to the king's command, but not them. They answered to a much higher authority the ultimate authority who must be obeyed at all costs. They were willing to take a stand. I mean, wrong is wrong. And it cannot be done even if the consequences mean certain death. For nearly 2,000 years now, totalitarian governments have told Christians that they must either conform to ungodly demands or die. I was watching, uh, Barbara and I were watching a documentary uh, the other evening, and in that documentary, they, they spoke of the fact that every six minutes today, a Christian is martyred somewhere in the world. Every six minutes. There were more Christians martyred in the 20th century than all the centuries before that combined. Martyrdom for Christians is on the increase. In many countries today, Christians are, are suffering horrible forms of persecution. They're restricted to the most menial tasks in society. They're imprisoned. They, they have their children taken from them. They suffer torture and die horrible deaths rather than conform to the demands of Islamists to convert to Islam or authorities who command them to stop worshiping God and to give the state the place in their lives which is only to be given to God and to God alone. And none of us have ever lived under that kind of suffering and persecution where we're, we're faced with the choice of either denying our Lord and our faith or imprisonment or death. It's coming. It may be right around the corner. That was the choice given to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they were men of solid conviction. Men who had determined in their hearts and minds long before this that they were not going to compromise their faith. These three men lived by solid biblical convictions and principles, and they didn't really care what the external pressure was. And as Christians, I believe we have a lot to learn from these three young men. You know, do we put God first? I mean, really. Do we put his word first? Do we do what we do based entirely on biblical morals and principles, or do we vacillate and compromise acting on feelings and external pressures from the culture in which we live? These three men were able to face external pressure that is literally unbelievable. Yet they made decisions based absolutely and only 
on principles and convictions based on the Word of God which they had been taught. To say the pressure on them was great is, is, a, is a gross understatement. But these three young men were determined to stand. When everyone else bowed down, they were going to remain standing. And they didn't make a big deal of it. You know, they didn't declare, we're, we're doing civil disobedience, which is exactly what they were doing. They just quietly, resolutely refused to obey the king's command. And their choice was to please God, to act on biblical principles and not give in to external pressure, whatever the consequences, even at the cost of their lives. And so picture, if you can, this scene in your mind. So there's a massive gold image, a large crowd of public officials. There's excitement, there's a great air of expectancy. And then the music plays, and, and as commanded, all the officials bow to the earth, and there, as conspicuous as can be, standing out like a sore thumb, are three men still standing. And every eye turned toward them. Everyone noticed them because everyone, they were all bowing down. But these three had the audacity to disobey the king and remain standing. They were quickly reported. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Or notice in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And the word accused means literally eat the pieces of. It is used to uh, speak of eating the pieces of flesh that are torn off a body as an animal would strip the flesh and tissue off a body and and consume it. it. It just speaks of a malicious, hating desire to tear them apart. And so certain Chaldeans came to maliciously slander, to just devour these three Hebrew men. Verse 9, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. (laughs) And so they began with the flattery that the kings like to hear. O king, live forever. You know, we're, we're really here just to assure you of our great loyalty and commitment. When in reality they were there because they were envious of the positions these young Jewish men had, and, and they wanted to do all that they could do to change that. And they said in verses 10 to 12, You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, king, you went out of your way to help these people. You gave them jobs that they didn't really deserve. And now look at them. Look how ungrateful and defiant they are. Now keep in mind, But the Chaldeans were men who owed their very lives to Daniel and his friends. If Daniel had not revealed the king's dream and its meaning to Nebuchadnezzar, all of the wise men of the land would have been put to death. And this is how they show their gratitude. By pointing out the disobedience of the three Hebrews to the king. They made three charges against them. They pay no attention to the king. In other words, they show disregard for the king's authority. But that's not completely true. Because they had unquestionably fulfilled their responsibility to the king insofar as it didn't violate their responsibility to God. They were good citizens. They were excellent citizens. Excellent officials. They had responded to the king. The second two accusations are true. They did not serve his gods, and they would not bow down to the image. 
Now, the Chaldeans had an obvious political motivation against these Jewish men who had been promoted to high office along with Daniel in the events recorded in chapter 2. And the Chaldeans couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand that these men were slaves, imported hostages, foreigners, you know, and the king made them rulers over the Chaldeans. That's what was really eating at them. And so we get a little bit of insight into the appalling sin of envy. You know, God says, for example, in Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. One commentator wrote, envy in the believer is as rotting bones in the sense that spiritual power and usefulness are curtailed. The Chaldeans were envious of Daniel and his three friends, and so they took advantage of the situation, hoping to bring about their demise. They interrupted the ceremony, reporting to Nebuchadnezzar that these three Jews refused to bow down. And when the king stopped the ceremony, stopped everything that was going on, everyone must have looked on with great interest to see how he was going to handle it. And if the three Hebrews would, in fact, give in to the king's orders. Notice verses 13 to 15. Here we have Nebuchadnezzar's interview. Verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage. I mean, he was not the kind of man that was used to having his orders disobeyed. The Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or or worship the golden image that I have set up? I mean, to his credit, Nebuchadnezzar, although he was a total pagan, didn't just accept the accusation on hearsay. He made sure of it with a personal interview. He commanded these men be brought before him, and he asked them, Is it true? Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? Is is this true? And then he assures them, just as the world around does to us, that, you know, if, if it's true... It's not too late to change and and to become like everyone else. Notice verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand. So he was going to give them a second chance to obey his command and and to prove their loyalty. He was going to instruct the musicians to play once more, and and if if they bowed down, well, you know, the whole thing would be forgotten. But if not, they would immediately suffer the consequences. They would immediately be thrown into the fiery furnace, which would demonstrate where the real power lay. I mean, once the king had them thrown in, who was the God who would be able to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand or his power? I mean, no one was going to defy his command. If they didn't worship the image, they would pay the price. Talk about pressure. There was an enormous amount of pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to compromise. Standing there with the heat of the furnace uh, blazing in their faces, I can see how they would have been tempted to rationalize and to convince themselves that it would be all right to bow down just this once ignoring the the clear commands of God. They could have made a case for situational ethics. You know, in this situation, it would be all right to bow down because 
If they didn't, they would be killed, and certainly God would not want these three young men to die, would he? Or they could have argued in terms of culture. You know, the Babylonians aren't going to understand the law of our God. We don't, we don't want to offend their culture and, and any opportunity to witness, so we'll bow down, we'll identify with them and, and their culture so that they will listen to us later. Or thirdly, they could have argued on the basis of forgiveness. God is a loving God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. We'll just bow this one time and then we'll ask his forgiveness. I mean, God is more gracious, understanding, and forgiving than these Babylonians. And it is true that God does forgive the sins of his people. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. But we absolutely misunderstand and greatly abuse the grace of God when we willfully, knowingly sin based on God's gracious forgiveness. You see, that reveals a a deeper problem of the heart. Because God's grace is never an excuse or a license to sin. Fourthly, uh, they could have argued for a, a silent protest. No, we'll we'll bow on the outside, but we're going to be standing up and and worshiping the true God on the inside in our hearts, and and certainly God will understand. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have come up with a number of excuses to justify compromising and disobeying God's Word. I mean, think how weak they must have appeared as they stood before the king. I mean, three young Hebrews, foreigners, seemingly abandoned by their God, helplessly facing the wrath of a powerful ruler. I mean, they must have looked pathetically weak. But as they stood before a furious Nebuchadnezzar under enormous pressure to compromise, they were resolute and uncompromising. They dared to be holy. They remained faithful. They didn't compromise because of outside pressure. Instead, they answered the king with one of the greatest expressions of faith in the Bible. Notice the stand they they take in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, yes, the charges that have been made are true. We have no Defense to make, no apologies, and and no excuses. The facts are the facts, and we acknowledge them. They didn't come back with an argument. What did they do? Well, they lived out their faith. They had determined in their hearts and minds to actually live out the absolute truth of God's Word. They didn't argue about it. They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It's true that we have not bowed before the golden image. And their answer was not arrogant. There was simply nothing more to say. They they were clearly and respectfully admitting their guilt. Nebuchadnezzar asked the question, Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And so they tell him. Look at verses 17 and 18. If this be so, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, I love this, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just love their answer. They entrusted themselves to God. No rationalization, no dialogue, no, you know, well, well what would you like us to do? Could, could we, we maybe bend down halfway? I mean, none of that. None of that. If Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the fiery furnace, so be it. Their God was able to deliver them. But if in his sovereignty God chose not to deliver them, they still were not going to sin against him by obeying the king's command. You see, they knew and they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was able to save them, 
from both the burning fiery furnace and from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar himself. But they also knew that they must do what, what is right, even if God did not do what they expected or hoped him to do. They did not doubt God's ability, but neither did they presume to know God's will in this matter. In this they agreed with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And they recognized that God's plan might be different than their desires. And so whether God rescued them or not, they were not going to bow down. You see, loved ones, this is how godly faith speaks and acts. We believe our God is able to deliver us. And not only that, we believe our God will deliver us. But as they said, but if not, and someone's going to go, well, wait a minute. We're sure he's going to deliver us, but, but he might not. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I mean, how many Christians say, you know, we know God is going to answer this prayer. But they don't turn around and also say, but he might not. Because someone is bound to say, oh, no, 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 that... That, that would be a lack of faith. You don't, you don't want to say that. But do you know what that kind of thinking really is? That kind of thinking that would say that is faith in your agenda, not faith in your God. What these three men were able to say was, we believe in our heart. I mean, we sense uh, God is going to deliver us, but we could be wrong. Now, they were not standing there defying King Nebuchadnezzar because they believed in their own agenda or their own plan, expecting God to go along with it. They were standing there defying the king because they believed in God. And they were determined to obey him no matter what the cost may be. And that's faith. You see, the, the real miracle occurred before they were ever thrown into the fire. As one man said, you could say that they were spiritually fireproofed before they were ever physically fireproofed. They had been given the faith and humility to trust God calmly and courageously. And loved ones, this is the faith that can take you into the furnaces. This is the faith that can help you face anything. And we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a principle in the Christian life that, should, that we should always remember. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, our duty is to do right. The consequences are with God. Out of love and gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we're to do what is right. Not according to the culture, not according to your feelings or emotions, but according to the Word of God. That's it, period. And if doing what is right means we are ruined, that's God's business. The consequences are in His hands. Ours is to seek to do what pleases Him, whatever the cost. I mean, whatever the consequences may be, right is right. And wrong is wrong. And we're to be resolved in our hearts to honor God by doing what is right and leaving the outcome to Him. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego live by that principle. I mean, never before, as far as, as we know, had they willingly displeased the king. I mean, there's no indication that that was something they wanted to do. But when the choice came down between pleasing the most powerful man on earth and pleasing the eternal God, there's only one way to go. They knew their part was to faithfully obey God, leaving the outcome to Him. And they would accept God's will, even if that meant death, rather than to be idolatrous. I mean, whatever else they may have been, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were first and foremost worshipers of the true God 
who said, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There were four things that gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the strength to stand in in this test of their faith, and I'm just going to mention them. Number one, they understood that God is sovereign, so it was not foolish, but it was very wise for them to entrust their lives to Him. Number two, they knew the Scriptures. And this is the reason they refused to bow down. God had forbidden it in His Word. I mean, today the world, and tragically, many within the professing church make moral issues as gray and as ambiguous as possible because in their minds that frees them to do what they want. But if we're to do what is right, what is biblical in the different situations we face, then we must know the Word of God, right? Because the Word of God is black and white. And the Word of God cuts through all of the ambiguity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego triumphed because their minds were filled with the Word of God and they kept coming back to the Scripture as the only fully trustworthy and inerrant authority in all matters. Number three, they were willing to die for their convictions. I've never seen a time when so many people lacked Conviction. They were willing to die for their conviction. And this is important because it's possible to believe in a sovereign God and know from Scripture what that sovereign God requires and yet fail to do the right thing because you're not willing to pay the price of obedience. Because it's costly. It's costly. And most of us probably will not be faced with the choice between compromise or execution. I hope you never will be, but we could. It could happen very quickly. But the issue is the same regardless of the penalty. Many Christians fail because they're not willing to pay the, the price of a loss of popularity. Or, or loneliness, or ridicule, or any kind of economic hardship. So what will they do when they're confronted with paying a, a much greater price than that? Only those who are willing to pay such prices make a difference. Number four, the fourth thing that helped them stand in, in this test of their faith is they feared God more than man. Now Jesus said in Matthew 10:28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And they knew what happened to their bodies. They knew that that wasn't the issue, but they also knew their souls had to be riveted on the truth of God. You know Martin Luther in Uh, utter loneliness on his way to what is known as the Diet of Worms to appear before King Charles V, the Roman prelate, and, and all of the assembled princes said this, and it's a great word, My cause shall be commended to the Lord, for he lives and reigns who preserved the three children in the furnace of the Babylonian king. If he is unwilling to preserve me, My life is a small thing compared with Christ. Expect anything of me except flight or recantation. I will not flee, much less recant. So may the Lord Jesus strengthen me. Luther took his cue from the three Hebrew young men. He didn't say, deliver me. He said, if God wants to take my life, it's a small thing compared with Christ. And with these great men of God and others, we stand before the pressure of the world to bow to its idols, its 
politics, its morals. But by the grace of God, we are to be unflinching, unwavering, and uncompromising in our commitment to God and His Word. Well, as you can imagine, and as we're told, Nebuchadnezzar's anger uh, was fierce. He was furious. His countenance was frightening in the furnace, intensely hot. But Daniel's three friends feared God more than the king. And so there was an impasse. Nebuchadnezzar would not budge from the path he had chosen. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not budge from the stand they had taken. Neither would budge. And so what was the outcome going to be? Well, we see Nebuchadnezzar's wrath in verses 19 to 23. Notice verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. You know, we, we kind of get the feeling that, that prior to their statement, Nebuchadnezzar uh, may have spoken kindly to them, you know, almost in a, in a fatherly manner to these, you know, these wayward boys of his. But after hearing their bold statement, the intensity of Nebuchadnezzar's anger even changed his countenance. And, and in his fury, he commanded the furnace be made seven times hotter than normal. You see, loved ones, when God's people refuse to compromise, there are no limits to the anger of the wicked. When we refuse to accept abortion and call it what it is, the murder of the unborn. When we refuse to accept homosexuality, lesbianism, and transgenderism as normal and declare that God says it is a sin and that men are men and women are women because God put it in our DNA. When we refuse to accept critical race theory and intersectionality into the church and declare what they are, Marxist ideologies that are in opposition to the Word of God. When we declare that there is such a thing as absolute truth and it is found in the Word of God. When we stand and declare that all roads do not lead to heaven, that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and that all who reject His gracious offer of salvation will spend eternity in hell, when we stand and declare those truths, we can and should expect to experience the anger and rage of the wicked who do not like it and do not want to hear it, because as the Scriptures say in Romans 1.30, they are haters of God. Nebuchadnezzar was so enraged. Who were they to defy him? Didn't they know who he was? And the furnace was made even hotter. And this furnace was probably a, a brick kiln uh, type structure with an opening at the top which could be reached by a ramp. So the material could be dumped through the top opening. And at the bottom of the furnace, there would have been a large opening where uh, fuel could be added and ashes uh, could be removed. And so the order was given, the furnace superheated. Then Nebuchadnezzar ordered, verse 20, some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. These uncompromising believers were thrown into the fire, falling uh, through the flames to the bottom of the furnace. They were bound and helpless in the fire that had killed those who, who threw them in and was certain to kill them too. 
And at this point, it looked like the end of these men of God. Nebuchadnezzar and his aides probably expected to hear a, a few shrieks as the men were thrown in and their bodies burst into flames. And that would be the end of the problem, they thought. Instead, the king saw something that caused him literally to jump out of his chair. Notice his astonishment in verses 24 to 27. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And the king, obviously seated a safe distance away in a position where he could see into the furnace, looked in with utter amazement. In fact, the verse says, astonished. He, he rose up in haste. And that phrase speaks of the fact that he was, he was terrified. He was, he was frightened so much so that he just quickly jumped to his feet. Though the executioners were killed by the flames at the entrance, the three Hebrews were not. In fact, they were walking around inside the furnace unhurt. Their bonds had been loosed, but the flames did not hurt them. And the king declared to his counselors in the rest of verse 24, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Then Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar was stunned. He was stunned by, by what he saw. There, there were not three men walking around in the furnace, but four. And the fourth person was not like the other three. He had a, a godlike appearance. And whatever that appearance was, Nebuchadnezzar knew it was not human, and he assumed it to be divine. He said the fourth was like a son of the gods. What does that mean? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan. He wouldn't have known the son of God if he saw him. And this simply means that Nebuchadnezzar recognized this was a supernatural, spiritual being. And this fourth person could possibly have been a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Or it could have been an angel. I mean, we don't know for sure which it was, but either way, it was someone sent by God to miraculously deliver His three faithful servants. In Isaiah 43, verses, verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, we read this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That promise given to Israel through the prophet Isaiah proved literally true in this instance. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and, and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. So going near the door of the furnace as close as he could get, Nebuchadnezzar, who, who you've got to believe, was rubbing his eyes this whole time in disbelief, called into the flames and, and told the men to come out. And you'll notice he referred to them not only by name, but also as servants of the Most High God, no doubt motivated by the fourth man in the fire. And fortunately for the king and all the rest, that fourth person did not come out with the other three. Verse 27, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The king and his officials saw firsthand the full extent of the miracle that God had performed before their very eyes. And as they looked the three over very, very closely, they saw that their clothing and their bodies had not been harmed at all by the intense heat and flames. Their hair had not even been singed. Their, their clothing wasn't burned. In fact, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. I mean, their deliverance could not have been more complete. The only thing they lost in those flames were the ropes which bound them. 
Well, faced now with such a clear and obvious demonstration of the mighty, miraculous power of God, an astonished Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Interesting that only moments before, Nebuchadnezzar had asked, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And here he answers his own question. Not only that, Nebuchadnezzar blessed the God of these men as the God who had delivered them from death. He, he praised them for their faithfulness in trusting and obeying their God even unto death. And unlike all the rest, they were not willing to serve any other God in addition to their own God, the, the true and the living God whom they loved and worshipped and served. And notice verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar does more than just praise. He said, therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That's pretty amazing. Nebuchadnezzar made a proclamation that nothing evil should be said against the God of the Hebrews. Their God had intervened and, and delivered them from the king's wrath, and he was going to make sure that this did not happen again. And so he declares that anyone, anyone who so much as spoke against the God of these men would be cut in pieces, <laughs> torn limb from limb, and their houses destroyed. All this because no other God had shown himself able to deliver as their God had done. One thing Nebuchadnezzar recognized, and that was power. And he had seen a miraculous display of power, the likes of which he had never seen. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't stupid. He was determined he was going to be nice to this God. Because if he ever needed anything, uh, he wanted this God to be on his side. And of course, that's the foolish thinking of a pagan, but that obviously was his thinking. Years ago, one of the coaches in the National Football League was asked why he always had a Christian minister on the sideline. Someone said, do you, do you really believe in God? And he answered, well, <laughs> I'm not really sure. But just in case there's one, I want him on my side. And that was Nebuchadnezzar in his pagan reasoning. when he was just you know, trying to cover all of the bases. Like uh, a man I know who was in some horrific battles in Vietnam, wasn't a believer, but he always made sure he carried a New Testament in his pocket and, and he went to every service Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. He just wanted to cover all the bases. Well, if you think the Chaldeans were unhappy at the beginning of the chapter, you can imagine what it was like for them at the end. Much to their chagrin, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, causing them to prosper in their administration of the province of Babylon. Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. But the new American standard says, Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. They were committed to doing what was right and left the outcome, the consequences to God. And in this instance, God delivered them literally and he blessed them and prospered them. I mean, as we do what is right, God will bless and prosper us in the way. And I'm not talking about uh, material blessings, but rather spiritual blessings. And God may choose to bless materially, but that's entirely up to him. 
Loved ones, we need more believers like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't we? We need to be like them. We need to be like them, you know, those who, who know the dangers of trying to serve God in this world, but who trust God in, in spite of the danger and who will not compromise. Regardless of how things may appear, these are the ones who, who really make a difference. You know, these are the ones who really triumph because they know God, they trust God to do with their lives whatever is best according to His divine will and purpose. A couple of things we learn from this text. I'll move through this quickly. First of all is the suffering of God's people. Unlike some today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not believe that faithfulness to God guarantees freedom from suffering, trials, tribulation, torture, and martyrdom. And we know from the Word of God that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christians should expect suffering and tribulation. And you can... See verses like 2 Timothy 3.12, Hebrews 11 and 12, James 1, 2 to 4, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25, and 1 Peter 4, 1 to 19. But in our suffering, we gain and, and we grow. And we experience a deeper level of fellowship with Christ. That's why Paul could say that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. He is with us in the fires of our trials and tribulations in a way that he may not have been previously. I mean, we know that God was with Daniel and his three friends at all times, but in the fiery furnace, God was with these three in a very special way. You see, God often reveals himself in our suffering in a much more personal, intimate, and, and glorious way. And so it was with these three. God was present with them in the fire, and the Lord will be with us in the fire as well. I mean, these men certainly bore witness to their trust in God by what they refused to do. But God's power was most dramatically demonstrated in the fire. And secondly, a lesson which we've already mentioned is one of faith. What these three young men did was incredible. They stood up against the most powerful nation and king of their time. I mean, standing virtually alone, they, they stood by faith. They had an incredible biblical faith in the face of certain death. And there are three things I want to just mention about biblical faith. Number one, biblical faith has the assurance to say, I know my God is able to deliver me. Number two, biblical faith has the confidence to say, I believe God will deliver me. But number three, biblical faith also has the humble, wise submission to say, but even if he does not, I will still trust him. Listen, God does not always bring miraculous deliverance for his people. That is more the exception than the rule. I mean, that's not his plan. Many, many, many of his people die for their faith. Look at the lives of the apostles. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Read Fox's book of martyrs. But God is always there with his children in the fire to give overcoming grace and strength in their time of need. As David wrote in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the very end of his life, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But, he said, the Lord stood by me and strengthened. We may stand alone in the sense that no man may stand with us. But we're not alone. For God is always with us to give us grace and strength in our hour of need. 
Loved ones, persecution is coming. I remember attending a conference and the first speaker, first thing he said was to, you know, 3,000 pastors, and this has been a few years ago, but the first thing he said was, gentlemen, prepare to go to prison. Persecution is coming. And what will you do? What will you do? What will you do when pastors start being arrested? Churches are closed down. Believers are arrested. What will you do? Will you stand and refuse to compromise like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What will you do? I think of Christians in the first century when whole families were taken to the Colosseum and the father was made to watch as his wife and children were slaughtered before his very eyes before they killed him because they refused to recant their faith. What will you do? Loved ones, the days in which we live demand that we think soberly and deeply about these things. Because it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. But the good news is, our God is sovereign, right? It's like the song we sang. I love that song. Our God is the ancient of days. Kingdoms rise and fall. But our God is the ancient of days. And our lives are in his hands. Our lives are secure, hidden in Christ. What a comfort that is. Let's stand and pray. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Bro.